following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14 this morning, and as I thought about this chapter, thought about these stories, I, I thought about us, I thought about my own life, I was reminded again of just how many of the most important lessons I've learned in my life, I've, I've learned by way of contrast. God showing me something in someone that I wanted to see in myself and showing me its deficiency in me. God showing me in someone else what I don't want to see in me. And by way of contrast, learning what to steer away from. I, I thought a lot about how many of the lessons I've learned in my life through contrast. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise that contrast is often used in the Bible to help expose us to something that God wants us to see. Now, as we open up 1 Samuel chapter 14, really 1 Samuel 14 and 15, you can kind of put these two chapters together as one continuing narrative, but we won't have time to do them both this morning. But this morning, we'll see that they're really a study in contrasts, a contrast between true biblical faith and a contrast between faith and external religion. And we'll see the reality of these two things as we see the difference between King Saul, who we've met a couple of weeks ago, and then his son, Jonathan. And so this morning, we're going to focus on chapter 14 for the sake of time and the contrast that the writer shows us in this chapter. And chapter 14 picks up exactly where we've left off. You might remember in chapter 13, the Israelites are right on the edge of a massive battle with the Philistines. The Philistines and their tens of thousands of soldiers, their chariots and their horsemen, the Israelites having been whittled down to 600 men with Saul and with Jonathan, them being the only two with swords. Saul having sinned against the Lord, not obeying the word of the Lord, and when confronted, winding up separating himself from Samuel, the prophet of God, the authority of God's word, rather than repenting. And now Saul, his son, their two swords and the 600 men of Israel are gathered together trying to ready themselves for an impossible task. And that's where the chapter ended. And it picks up in the beginning of chapter 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But, but he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So a lot is being said for us right there, setting us up for the story. God's people are facing an impossible military situation. And Saul, their king, their leader, he scooted back from the front lines and he's sitting in a cave. Gathered around him are men of ill repute. It's a picture of Saul, the king, the leader, sitting there in a sense of resignation and hopelessness. And I say this because of the people that he's gathered to himself. The writer wants us to understand what's happening here. Saul, whose dynasty, whose kingdom has been removed from him by God because of his sin, has gathered to himself a priest from the disgraced line of Eli. Nephew of Ichabod, the glory has departed. 
when Saul separated himself from Samuel from the word of the Lord, the king whose kingdom has been removed gathers to himself the priest of the glory having been departed. A priest whose, a king whose line has been rejected is with a priest whose line has been rejected. And the writer tells us this priest, he would have been wearing the ephod and That's important because in the ephod, the garment of the priest, there would have been a pocket for the umim and the thumim. And those were two instruments that the Lord had given the priest to be able to determine the Lord's will. It was kind of like dice in a sense that they would roll. And somehow the Lord had helped instruct them, would discern his will in a situation. So here Saul is, the, the rejected king sitting with the rejected priest who has with him the ephod and the means of discerning God's will. But Saul isn't making any use of it. He doesn't seem to be concerned with trying to understand what God wants from him in this situation. But Jonathan, his his son, the one who last week provoked this whole thing by defeating the Philistines in his hometown, and we we weren't sure then, hey, Dr. Hudson, sorry, Dr. Hudson is right out there. Did you see that? Former, hey, there he is. Good to see you. Everybody can turn around and wave and say hi, Dr. Hudson. Good to see you. Sorry. Sorry, Dr. Hudson was a principal here for the 10 years that we were here, and I haven't seen him in a while, so it's good to see him again. All right. That wasn't planned, I promise you, all right? So anyway, back in the spirit. Um, <laughs> Saul... Last week, we don't know if he, if he commanded Jonathan to actually go and, and, and to engage the Philistines. We just know that Jonathan did it. We weren't really sure whether Saul knew or not, but this week we know. Jonathan is about to do something, and he's clearly not telling his father. So here in the very beginning of this part of the story, we see Jonathan acting and Saul sitting, one stuck in a paralyzed manner of fear, the other is actually moving forward with a a confidence. And the story is going to help us understand a bit more about it. Verse 4, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, which means slippery. The name of the other was Sina, which means thorny. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. That's a lot of detail for a situation like this, but it's important because the writer wants you to be able to see it, especially because you're not familiar with it. These, these rocky crags use the Hebrew word for tooth. Same word used in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You're supposed to picture in your mind two very steep, pointy, rocky, slate-like mountains with a ravine in between them that looked like two teeth, so much so that in taking the danger of going down one, entering into the valley between, would be like going into the mouth of death itself. There was no way to protect yourself. They want you to see just how dangerous, just how impossible what Jonathan is proposing he would have to descend the jaws of death to ascend straight into the garrison of the Philistines. Impossible by most standards. So much so that the Israelites are on one tooth, the Philistines are on the other, and they don't seem to be fighting because the valley between them, because of these teeth, are so impossible to cross. But Jonathan seems to be the kind of person who imagines possibilities when everyone else only seems obstacles. I'm married to one of these types. It's a gift most of the time. In fact, Jonathan will 
will use this personality and this gift to serve a man we're going to meet in a few weeks named David. It's an amazing story. Just as my wife's gifting this way has served my life. And, and honestly, I'll tell you, to serve the church, if, if she was not one who saw possibilities when I saw obstacles, we might not actually be here. So this personality is important. And the stage is, is being set Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What's going to unfold in the following verses is arguably one of the greatest and most overlooked stories in the Bible. It is an absolute textbook case on biblical faith. So many of the elements of biblical faith are seen here in this conversation between Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan helps us to see and reminds us of something we know to be true but so easily forget that true faith doesn't focus on circumstance. It focuses on the nature and character of God. True biblical faith is God-centered. Nothing, Jonathan said, can keep God from saving Not nothing can keep us from winning, but nothing can keep God from saving. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for him. Do do you believe that this morning? This all-powerful reality of God's character, it's the very thing that makes our faith possible. And when our hearts are captivated by the reality of God's all-encompassing power, God-centered confidence produces a unique confidence in the heart of a believer. You hear it in Jonathan when he says, perhaps God will act for us. Now, some of you hear him say that, and that sounds like a lack of faith or a lack of confidence to you, but it's not. Saying perhaps is not a lack of confidence. You and I need to be very careful not to confuse biblical faith with arrogance. Perhaps is an essential ingredient in biblical faith. Faith is indeed rooted and grounded and centered in God's infinite power, but faith does not presume on God's power. Faith does not dictate to God how he is to operate. You might be familiar with Jesus on his knees in the garden one fateful night, speaking with his father, saying, Father, all things are possible for you, Mark 14. All things are possible for you. If there's any other way to let this cup of wrath pass, please, but not my will be done. Your will be done. True biblical faith in God knows his power to do all things, but true biblical faith submits to God's will and his freedom because true biblical faith knows that God in all things is both wise and good. Jonathan is is expressing this in this moment with his armor bearer. God can do mighty works with little to no resources and he may be pleased to do it in this situation but how can we know unless we get ourselves out there? The faith we see in Jonathan, it it takes this rooted confidence in God and, and it mixes it with his own initiative as he seeks to advance the cause of God. He offers himself up to God without demanding anything from him. That's important, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but we've got to keep with the story. Does Jonathan's perhaps negate what he was about to do? 
Did he just shoot himself in his foot by saying, perhaps God will act, rather than saying, I know God will act? Listen to the story. Verse 8, Jonathan said, behold, we're going to cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign for us. So both of them, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they show themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines say, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and and we'll show you a thing. That's like saying, we'll teach you a lesson. You got to read it like a human. How funny must it have been to the Philistines to see these two Israelites coming out from the toothy crag, one with a sword, one holding armor and showing themselves to the entire garrison of the Philistines. It was funny to them, right? So Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. You've got to imagine this. This is no like Colorado switchback with the aspens and the greenery and all of that. These are Afghan toothy crags. Rocky, slippery, tall, pointy, dangerous. Jonathan and his armor bearer are on their hands and their knees descending one tooth into the valley, absolutely uncovered at this point, the valley of death between these two things, now to ascend on their hands and their feet to where the Philistines are. You've got to see it like a human. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and as they get there, they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. So in less than an acre of land, Jonathan and his armor bearer, with one sword, having climbed down, across, and back up, put to death in less than an acre, 20 Philistine soldiers. Straight beast mode, right there. That's the definition. Close quarters combat, right there. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people. The garrison, even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. God seemed to take Jonathan's confidence in him and his willingness to act upon that and multiply its effects. Fishes and loaves in the Old Testament. Meanwhile, though, back in Pomegranate Cave, you got to go back there for a minute. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude, talking about the Philistines here, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Literally, the Hebrew says it was melting. This strong force, this impossible group of people, this massive force was melting away in front of them. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who's gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So he still didn't know that Jonathan had left. And you've got to wonder again what's going on in his mind. This whole thing started because Jonathan defeated the Philistines in Gibeah a few days ago. So realizing that Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone, Saul says to the priest, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now, if you've been with us in the story, you might remember the tragedy that occurred. Last time, God's people called for the ark to come to them when they were engaging in battle. It ended in their defeat, right? 
So all of a sudden, you've got to be thinking in your mind, oh no, here we go again. This is the descendant, the priest of the same ones who called the ark in last time. And here Saul is now leading the people, seeming in his mind to do the right religious thing. I'm going to go get the ark. But as he calls for the ark, while Saul was talking, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Never mind. Whatever Saul felt like he needed from God in calling the ark there, whether that for him, we don't know the details, was meant to be some kind of talisman like it was earlier in the story, whether he thought in bringing the ark together with the priest who had the ephod would provide some manner of direction for him and what he should do, whatever it was that Saul thought he was doing and needed from God in bringing the ark, he realizes what's happening and says, I don't need God's input anymore. I got it. Take your hand away from that. As one scholar says, and you can begin to see it unfold in the rest of the story, Saul begins to give the impression that he felt like he was supposed to be religious and observe certain conventions at certain times, but really he had no deep conviction of his own. He uses religion as opposed to a living and personal confidence in the Lord. You're going to see it over and over again. It's why I pointed out here the contrast between Saul's religion and Jonathan's faith is only going to grow. So in verse 20, Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and they went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. You see, what Jonathan knew God could do, God actually did do. He saved his people that day by few. Again, proving to Israel that he is and always has been the one who saves his people from their distress. God acted upon Jonathan's confidence in him and Jonathan's stepping out in that confidence to go to battle against the Philistines and God brought to bear upon that battle every sword that was necessary to accomplish the victory. There were two swords in all of Israel, Jonathan and Saul. Saul kept his in a scabbard. One sword steps out in confidence in God against the Philistines. And what does God do? God causes all the Philistines to turn on themselves and the Israelites who had left them to join the Philistines to then turn on the Philistines. So that every sword necessary to defeat the Philistines on that day, God brought to bear on that battle. Not only that, Jonathan's confidence in God, his faith in God, had an impact on all the people. His confidence in God and his obedience out of that confidence began to rally God's people to come out of hiding and engage. I mean, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but just think about it in your own life and in your own history. How many times has someone's confidence in the Lord, someone's faith in God, and their obedience to follow that faith whether it may look like big or small, has done something to fan into flame the embers of your confidence and faith in God in your heart. All of a sudden, everyone who was hiding, everyone who was in the tombs, everyone who was in the caves, they all begin to come out. Friends, it's this kind of confident and daring faith in God that's still so needed in the church. 
in the face of such urgent local and national and global needs, the the planting of churches to spread the gospel to the unreached and the unengaged, the impact of such confidence in God, it's still needed. Yet if we're honest, it's a lot easier and therefore far more common for us to look a lot more like Saul today. To be way more preoccupied with all of the challenges, the funding that's needed, the people that are needed, the resources that are needed. In fact, we can get really religious about it too. We can sit down in the cave of the pomegranate and think we're waiting on spiritual guidance from the Lord when really what we're trying to do is justify procrastination and indecision. We've got to see what else the story shows us of Saul if we're going to understand the contrast. Verse 24, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, curse be the man who eats food until it's evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Israel was hard-pressed in chapter 13 as the Philistines mounted their huge army against them on every side. Tens of thousands raging down upon them, ready to do battle. The Bible said they were hard-pressed. You remember that last week? But God has delivered them from that. He's delivered them from the Philistines on this day. But here they are still hard-pressed. Why? Because Saul found a way to quite literally snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. He found a way to turn God's deliverance of his people into a means of distress. Saul, in his heart, was determined in this moment to avenge himself, to avenge his own name. And his determination for his own vengeance and his own name has now negatively impacted his people. Listen to what happens. Verse 25. When all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Saul had put an oath on his people not to eat until his name was vinged, until he got vengeance for his name. And they're hungry, and they're faint, and they've been fighting, but they won't eat what's being provided here. But verse 27, Jonathan, he had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he dipped it in the honeycomb and he put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint, but Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. That's a big word. It's the same word used in the history of Israel to talk about a man named Achan in the book of Joshua who brought trouble upon God's people because he sinned against the Lord by taking the spoils from the ruins of Jericho that God had said, do not touch. This is what Jonathan is saying that his own father's oath to the people has done to them. Jonathan said, look, see how, see how bright my eyes have become because I tasted of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. You see, Jonathan could see that Saul's foolishness was keeping Israel from enjoying God's blessing. Jonathan sees the honey in the forest as God's provision for strength for the battle. Saul understood his oath, his command as a prohibition, as a means of persuading God to make them successful in avenging his own name. Saul thought that if he could get his people to fast, to not eat, somehow or another, that would persuade God to come into the battle for them to be successful as he went to avenge his own name. 
as he sought vengeance on his enemies. Saul was again being religious. He was showing a form of godliness while denying its power. He was requiring more of God's people than God himself had even asked. Again, it's another sermon for another time, but we we know all too well what this is like. We know what it is to be like Saul and dream up guidelines for our own lives and for the lives of others that God never puts upon us. The church is burdened with story after story, generation after generation of parents and church leaders who put upon children and church members burdens that the Lord never puts upon them and it only weighs down and hardens the heart to God's authority and the church's authority and the good of his church. Saul has demanded more of his people than God has even asked. He's been done it out of a form of godliness, hoping to persuade God to come and act on his behalf for his name, not God's name, but for his name to be exalted and avenged. And his harsh requirement resulted in a tremendous sin, an unintended consequence. And we could tell story after story of how this happens, but look at verse 31. The Israelites continued on, having not eaten, and they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahaz. I don't even know how to say that. Somebody else can say that one. And the people were very faint. The distance between those two places is 20 miles. 20 miles of very harsh terrain. They haven't eaten. They've been fighting. The people, when they got there and they had won the, the, the victory, they pounced on the spoil and they took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Now that was a no-no. God's law did not permit them to eat meat before the blood had been drained. So in verse 33, they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord, eating with the blood. And Saul says, you've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me over here. And Saul says, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord but it was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. So the king who had not obeyed the word of the Lord, who when his sin was exposed did not show any contrition or repentance for it, who shows no confidence in God at all when pressed on all sides by his enemy, who out of a a desire to avenge his own name burdens his own troops, he's now all of a sudden concerned with this particular sin. And so the king begins to play the priest Yet all along, he never acknowledges that he's actually the source of the problem. Saul, again, zealous and eager for a form of godliness, calls for an altar to be made and a sacrifice to be made. It's borderline superstitious. It's a fear being couched in religious terminology. Verse 36, Saul says, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning. Let us not leave a man of them. And listen to what they said. They said, do whatever seems good to you. Up to this point, Saul has led with zero conviction. He has not led the armies of Israel in this battle with any direction at all. He's been passive the whole time. Now all of a sudden, He wants to tell them to go down and raid the Philistines and plunder everything. The soldiers are like, whatever. You've shown no conviction at all to this point, so our obedience shows about the same conviction. How different is their response to Saul than Jonathan's armor bearer to him? Jonathan displays such a deep confidence in the power and the work of the Lord. His armor bearer says, I'm with you, heart and soul. Let's go do it. God can save by many or by few. Perhaps he'll do it today. 
Saul's men at this point are like, whatever looks good to you. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. But the priest, Saul having given this command, the, the priest chimes in finally. Maybe we should draw near to God here. Saul's altar building and sacrifice making had nothing to do with his heart drawing near to God. It was an external religious observance that Saul thought he was supposed to do in that moment because of what the men had done, never acknowledging that the whole thing started because of him. And so now he's got all this zeal all of a sudden to go down there and do this thing, and the priest, the disgraced grandson of Eli, has to go, well, hold up. Maybe we should pray. And so Saul inquires of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God didn't answer him on that day. Right there with all of his men, right there. The priests, the people around him, the men in front of him. Saul finally makes a show of asking God's direction and God ghosts him completely. Doesn't say anything. Can you imagine what Saul must have been feeling in that moment in front of everybody? Well, that religious indignation comes up. Saul says, come here, all you leaders of the people, Know and see how this sin has arisen today. Saul is assuming that God's silence in this moment is still someone else's fault. His foolishness is like an avalanche coming down a mountain picking up steam. Verse 39, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Because a lot of the men knew what had happened in the forest. Saul didn't know what happened in the forest. Jonathan didn't know what Saul had said. Saul doesn't know what happened in the forest. But a lot of the men sitting there right there are listening to Saul going, everybody come together. We're going to find out exactly what has happened and the nature of this sin. And even if it's my son, he can't even believe it would be possible. But even if it's my son, he'll die. And the men sitting there are going, you are crazy. He has no idea that it was actually his son who ate the honey. So Saul forms two groups, the people on one side, he and Jonathan on another. He has the priest cast the umim and the thumim, cast lots to discern where the sin falls. They cast the lots, the sin falls, and it's in Jonathan or Saul. They cast the lots again. That's where verse 42 picks up. After the second casting of the lots, Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. And I want one day in eternity to see Jonathan's face when he says this and hear his voice. Here I am, I will die. I mean, he's the one that knew just how foolish his dad really was. He knew just how foolish what his dad had, had promised and, and could find God's people by. He knew just how silly it was. And I have to believe there was something of a of a righteous indignation in Jonathan in this point. Really? I haven't done anything wrong. And you're going, go ahead. Here I am. I'll die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. He makes another oath. So foolish. William Blake is a great Old Testament commentator. He said Saul ought to have seen it. He ought to have confessed that he was entirely out of his mind, 
frankly and cordially, he should have taken the blame on himself and at once exonerated his noble son. But such action, however, requires a quality of character and godliness that Saul simply doesn't possess. And so in verse 45, something Saul could have never imagined happens. The people say to Saul, the king, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head that falls to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Saul, in his foolishness, has alienated himself already from the word of the Lord and Samuel, gets, gathers to himself the disgraced grandson of the priest, alienates himself from him by acting all the, in all these religious ways and not consulting him in the word of the Lord, alienates himself from his son through this oath, now condemning him to death, and alienates himself from his armies and his people who go against his verdict and ransom his son from this sentence. On one day when God had given him an impossible victory as king, Saul was able to destroy his credibility and wrap it all up in a religious veneer. But we're reminded again that God can't be bought off or fooled by good works or efforts at religious formalism. Over and over again, Saul seems to exalt himself and every effort at building up his, his own name only seems to bring him downward. Saul is one of the greatest tragic figures in all of history. And here's the thing, as, as you and I read a story like this, and we read a long story really fast, a lot of words and a lot of verses. As you read it at the same time and you see the tragedy of his life, if you're really honest with yourself, you and I can empathize with the tragedy. We know what it is to be like Saul, to truly in our hearts not trust the Lord in such a way that we don't have a confidence enough in who he is to obey him and what he has said and at some point in our hearts forget him altogether. We know what it is to be foolish, to say in our hearts, not in our minds, not intellectually, not with our mouths, but in our hearts, in our confidence, to say there really is no God and to come up with all manner of schemes to save ourselves that might look religious. Read enough of this, go to enough of this, do enough of this. Come up with all manner of schemes that we think will save us from ourselves, but really they're just as silly and empty as Saul's because only God can save us from our true enemies. And the beauty of 1 Samuel chapter 14 is a reminder that not only can God save us from our true enemies, but like he did in chapter 14, he has saved us. God has saved us from our true enemies through a greater son than Jonathan, a son who has won the victory for us by descending into the jaws of death on a different mountain, the mountain of the skull where he was consumed by death, and ascending on the other side victorious, not with a sword, not slaying our, our mortal enemies with a sword, but slaying our eternal enemies of Satan, sin, and death with his own life. In his life, and most clearly in facing the cross, Jesus acted in the faith that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 14, not the fear of Saul. Again, if there was any other way, he said, any other way for this to be accomplished, Father, let it happen but yet not my will be done, 
Jesus, the greater son who would save God's people, trusted in the goodness and sovereignty of God the Father. And in that confidence, he submitted himself to be an instrument of deliverance and salvation. Unlike Jonathan, Jesus would not be ransomed from the death that he didn't deserve to die. Rather, God would use his death as a ransom to deliver you and I from the slavery of sin and fear that we have earned because of our sin. You know, one of the greatest tragedies in the story of Saul and Jonathan is that because of Saul's sin, God taking away his kingdom, Jonathan would never get to be king. If you read the story without a sermon, without someone explaining it to you, the expectation that builds in your heart is that this next king is going to be Jonathan. You find out the kingdom is taken away from Saul and for two chapters all you hear about is this man who has this deep confidence in God, who has this fearlessness before God and you think there's the one that God is raising but guess what? He can never be king because of his dad. One of the greatest tragedies is that Israel doesn't get to be led by a man who has such tremendous confidence in God and fearlessness to obey. Jonathan serves not only as a tremendous example for you and I, And he is an example. Don't get so gospel-centered in everything that you fail to miss that he is a tremendous example to you and I of a confidence in the all-powerful sovereignty of God that spurs in us a willingness to go and advance the cause of the gospel knowing that God perhaps can and often does save by many and by few. So we put ourselves out there that God might use us as instruments of his grace. Yes and amen, but even more than that, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 does point us to a greater son that God does use to save us from our true enemies and a son who does actually get to become king. A king who, unlike Jonathan, gets to reign forever. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we get naturally so tempted in trying to figure out how when we see the sin of Saul and the virtue of Jonathan, trying to figure out how we put ourselves in Jonathan's shoes, but we can't. But there is one who has already done that. Jesus has already put himself in the position of Jonathan to descend into the jaws of death, to arise victorious, defeating the enemies of God's people. Our responsibility now on this side of the cross is to follow him, is to trust him enough to walk behind him wherever he leads. You and I don't have to be preoccupied with how to be like Jonathan. We get to live in the grace of the spirit of God who makes us like Christ. This is the privilege that we have as God's people. This changes everything. As Paul would tell the church in Rome, if he who did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, if that is true, how will he also not graciously give us all things? What do we actually have to fear? If Jesus, this greater son than Jonathan, willingly descended into the jaws of death to suffer and die for your faithlessness, for my soul-like disobedience, only to rise victoriously, defeating sin and death, to ascend to the throne where he reigns as king forever, what is it that we actually have to fear? We don't have to waste any time trying to figure out how to be more like Jonathan. We get to follow a victorious king wherever he leads as his very spirit that raised him from the dead makes us more like him. We get to get in on his victory. 
We get to enjoy the spoils. In fact, if you read the story on this side of the cross, it's not so much how do I be like Jonathan and how do I not be like Saul. If we're really honest, you and I are a whole lot more like those Israelites who hid themselves in the caves and hid themselves in the tombs. When God worked victory on their behalf, they got to pop their heads up and get out and enjoy the spoils. That's us. The victory has already been won. The king has already defeated the enemies. You and I get to come out of hiding and in confidence in him and in what he has accomplished. We get to get in on it. We get to enjoy the spoils. We get to get brought into the advancement of his reign and the advancement of his rule. We get to see him like those disciples who saw him that Tim was talking about in John 20, 20 and be overjoyed as he is in us and we are in him. And we get to know that all things are possible with him. Nothing is too hard for him. He can do anything. And the question we have to deal with is do we believe it? If he is for you, who or what can truly stand against you? Who or what can truly stand against him? So in the face of mounting pressures and great need, what is underfunding? What really is under-resourcing? What is understaffing? What, what is sm- a smaller church? Would it not be better for you and I who know we follow a victorious king to act bravely and daringly, owning the reality of failure should he not step in, but knowing that he is often pleased to bless such bold missions done in faith? 1 Samuel chapter 14 reminds us on this side of the cross that The gospel is not going to advance to the unreached and the unengaged. Our our neighbors are not going to be loved in a way that reflects something of God's Christ-like grace to them. The widows aren't going to be cared for. Orphans aren't going to be given homes. The hungry aren't going to be fed. The imprisoned aren't going to be met with the gospel all of a sudden one day because our budget got big enough and there were enough people here. That's not how it happens. 1 Samuel chapter 14 reminds us that God can win this battle without us. He doesn't need us to be large. He doesn't need us to be wealthy. God can win by many or God can win by few because it's not about our might. It's not about our intellect. It's not about our finances. It's about his sovereign power. If God is on our side, the Lord of glory is on our side, nothing can stand in our way and nothing can withstand what he has purposed. Friends, I get the privilege, the pastors here get the privilege to stand on one side of this church and hear so many stories and see so many evidences of this kind of brave and daring, confident faith in God in this church. And you never get to hear it. You don't get to see the faces and see the names because people doing it aren't doing it for their own popularity. There are people in this church, men and women, who are going to serve those in prison with the gospel and you don't know anything about it. There are more families than you're aware of inconveniencing themselves and their lives so that those without mothers and fathers in this city can find homes to be loved, to experience something of God's love for them. People, families all over this place, inconveniencing the reality of their life to serve mothers who are at risk in this city, kids who are at risk in this city, the cause of the unborn in this city. It's going to be inconveniencing And there are people here who are doing this very thing out of a confidence in God and a willingness to put themselves in that place that God may, may use them by many, may use them by few. But knowing that without doing it, it's not going to happen. 
Do you know what the 21st century version of the cave of the pomegranate is? It's Facebook. Where so many of us sit on the computer and get so agitated and so frustrated at all the things we see around us, all the ills in the world that we see around us, and all the way the Christians and the church and the ministries aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. But here's the thing. For all of us who like to sit in the cave and and get very loud about what should happen and what's not happening, I'm very curious about how many of us are actually inconveniencing ourselves and our own lives to see the very thing we seem to be so mad about actually met. All of that nonsense and all that puffing and all that boasting is just sitting in the cave with Saul unwilling to actually trust God and step out and do something. But I love the fact that this place is replete with stories of ordinary, faithful men and women and families in this church who are willing to trust God, knowing that he can save and do anything by many or by few, and are putting themselves in his way to be used by his grace as instruments of grace. It's easy to sit. It's easy to get bogged down by obstacles. It's easy to complain. As one pastor said, the true secret of all spiritual success lies in our seeking to be instruments in God's hands and in our lending ourselves to him to do in us and by us whatever is good in his sight. All we need is a faith that believes that God can triumph by many or by few and a willingness to follow a victorious king into the fray. What will God do in a city like ours through a church like us if we're willing to stand in the power of God for the cause of the gospel and the cause of truth and grace in the city. Some of you will take the class we offered a few weeks on William Carey, and you'll learn how God launched a generation of global missions through this man who believed that we should attempt great things for God while we expect great things from him. Friends, are we going to be willing out of a confidence in who God has continued to be for us and promises to be for us Are we going to be willing to offer ourselves to his service? To step forward into the scene of action. To pray to him to give openings to us. To give us strength to step through the doors. And when he does, to actually take the opportunities that he gives us, that he provides, confident that by his grace he will empower our efforts. Will we be willing to faithfully and boldly and daringly follow the victorious king wherever he would lead us, knowing that it may be that the Lord will work through us? And this is the beauty of the reminder that we get in a place like 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's not about us. It's not measured by our intellect, by our strength, by our resourcing, or by our ability, but by his infinite power to do as he pleases for his glory and our joy. Will we be willing to step in and enjoy it? To enjoy the power of his grace. To see his grace transform the lives of those around us. This is the call that he gives us. Will we be willing to respond? That's the question we get. I'm gonna pray and give you a couple of moments to reflect on that very thing and then 
for those of us who have indeed tasted of his grace and believed upon Jesus as king, as savior, you're gonna be invited to come forward and receive communion, taking the bread, remembering his body broken and dipping it into the cup, remembering his blood shed for the redemption of our sins. And as you do that, you are actually proclaiming your confidence in God as king and your willingness to follow him. And as you do that in faith and in confidence in what he has said, God uses it to strengthen and better deepen your confidence in him that as he sends us out from here, we by his spirit can be the people that he's called us to be. So let me pray and I'll give you a moment to reflect. Father, we thank you that um, as dangerous as contrast can be to our hearts and as encouraging as they can be and at the same time as, as condemning and crushing as they can be, Lord, you, you have left us not having to figure out how to be one person or another, but Lord, you have given us yourself. You have hidden us in, in yourself and you are alive in us by your spirit and you are conforming us into the image and likeness of your son. We don't have to figure out how to be anybody, but who you have made us to be as you make us more like your son, as you change the delights of our hearts, as you change the motives of, your, of our hearts, as we reflect more of what pleases you and we become repelled by more of what displeases you. We ask that you would continue to do this work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we might have a deeper faith, a deeper confidence in who you are that would compel us out into the need that we see, that we would be instruments of your brave, your brave and victorious grace for a watching world. We ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.